0: You know, that's, that's quite a difficult question and different employers will react differently and it may depend even on little things like the way that you word things. You should plan ahead how you're going to ask those questions and get the wording to be, I guess, kind of assertive but at the same time polite.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping podcast. My name is Daniel, and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Nathan Hazelwood, and he is the business consulting lead at Eagle Technology. So Eagle Technology is a geospatial consulting company based in New Zealand. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about hiring and being hired for geospatial jobs. Just before we get into the episode today, I want to say a big thank you to my sponsor, ReGrid. So ReGrid was formerly known as LandGrid, and they are one of the leading providers of land parcel and location context data for the US. Okay, so so to give you an idea of how much data this is, they have 150 plus million parcels. They cover about 99% of the US population. Their data set consists of 120 plus attributes for for the parcel data and they have 155 million footprints so this is a big data set and there's a lot of different ways that you can get access to it they have a self-serve portal they have a tile server they have an api that you can call and they also offer a free trial so you can download up to 50,000 rows of parcel data for free just go along to regrid.com plans and yeah you can try it out for yourself see if it's something that you're interested in So if you want to understand how US land is subdivided, owned, used, inhabited and networked into economies and ecologies, regrid.com would be a great place to start. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Hi Nathan, welcome to the podcast. It's a a real pleasure to be talking with another New Zealander, so I'm really looking forward to this. Before we get started today, would you mind just sort of briefly introducing yourself to the audience, perhaps explaining where you are now in your geospatial career and, and how you got there? And this is hopefully going to sort of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about today. And, and that is an article that you published on LinkedIn a while ago, and it was titled Top Tips for Writing a, a GIS CV. So maybe we could start off a little bit about where you are at your career now and how you got there and perhaps move into the premise behind this article and some of the advice that, that you gave in that article.
0: Thank you, Daniel. Okay, so uh, I currently lead a couple of GIS teams at Eagle Technology, which is based in here in Auckland. And part of my role at Eagle is to hire new personnel. I started in the geospatial industry in about 1993, and I've worked for many different organisations, including national mapping agencies, data capture companies, software vendor companies, and some interesting roles that I've had. I worked for 10 years for the British Ministry of Defence. And in another role, an interesting job that I had was being a navigator flying planes for an aerial photography company. In my current role, I manage a team of GIS consultants that are doing a wide variety of GIS jobs across many sectors of the industry. In the past couple of years, I've hired probably around about 20 different personnel at various levels of experience um, that's primarily due, due to a lot of growth that we've had in our company. A few years ago, we were probably at about 100 personnel, but that's, uh, we're nearing 150 personnel at the company at the moment. In addition to those things, I've also been involved with a group that we have here in New Zealand called the Emerging Spatial Professionals, which is a group which seeks to help recent graduates and students to take their first steps in the geospatial industry so that's that's a bit about me
1: thank you very much for for the background i think that really sort of sets the stage there why did you feel it was necessary to write the this top tips for for writing a, a gis cv was there something missing out there were you seeing a bunch of common mistakes why did you do that
0: so quite often i get either cvs that have been sent to me and despite the fact that the candidate might have a lot of good skills Sometimes their CVs are not very well written. And in other cases, unfortunately, one thing which I have seen is that some recent graduates struggle to get their first geospatial jobs. So, getting that first uh, foot in the door, sometimes when they've graduated from university, that can be quite difficult. And one of the reasons for that is that their CVs haven't been written very well. So, I get a lot of emerging professionals, uh, recent graduates who come to me for advice and with the CVs it tended to be a lot of advice that I was repeating. I decided that it was a good idea to write an article that hopefully they can follow and pick up some tips about how to write a good CV.
1: Yeah and I think that was a really generous thing to do and we're going to talk about some of those tips in just a minute but maybe before we talk about how to write the CV, the kind of things we should be including, the way we can highlight our skills, all of that sort of good stuff, Could you give me an understanding of what the application process looks like at at your company, just so we can understand how the CV fits into the application process, the different people we might be writing for?
0: So I think at my company and at most other organisations, it's fairly similar, at least in New Zealand where I am. The process basically starts with online job advertisements. However, it's important to note that we also sometimes ask recruitment agencies to find candidates for us for specialist roles or we hire people because one of our staff knows someone who we want to hire or that we know is looking for a job and so really the networking aspect is critically important when you're working in an industry like uh, the geospatial industry networking and going to events and conferences and that kind of thing is a really good way to introduced to people and you don't know in six months time you might be looking for a job and and be speaking with that person or that person might have a job available so that's one tip to bear in mind going through the rest of the hiring process the next step is we get a lot of cvs that come through and for some jobs you know we can have dozens or even a couple of hundred applications for certain jobs so Sorting through all of those CVs can be a really difficult task for the the hiring manager and for the HR manager within an organisation. So that's something to really think about. The HR manager will do a first review of the CVs and try and create a shortlist, which they will then hand on to the hiring manager. And that hiring manager will decide which of those shortlisted people they want to interview. Obviously, then they'll do, in my company, we do a first interview, which we then follow up quite often with a second interview, which tends to be much more technical. And then we often also do some form of a competency test. Then after that, uh, obviously, we'll make an offer to the preferred candidates and start thinking about uh, negotiating salaries and benefits.
1: If we think about that HR person who perhaps doesn't necessarily have a really good technical understanding of GIS geospatial, how important are keywords in that that first section of our CV? What should we be thinking about there?
0: So it's it's uh, you're right, Daniel. It's absolutely essential that you're using the keywords that that HR person is probably looking for right up front at the start of your CV, and some other important things to think about with that is that the keywords that a particular organisation is looking for, they're going to vary from organisation to organisation. So an example of that is the perennial debate that we have in the geospatial industry about you know, even what we call ourselves. Are we GIS professionals or are we geospatial professionals or are we geomatics or location intelligence and so on? It's really important that you look at the job advertisement and any other information that you can find and reflect back to the employer the terminology that they use. If their job ad talks about uh, looking for a, a GIS analyst and in your CV you're talking about being a geospatial analyst, you know, go through and change the name all the way through your CV so it matches what the employer is looking for. You know, that's that's quite a basic high-level example of this um there's a lot of other things which that should apply for uh, too as well so you know if you talk in in your cv about having experienced data wrangling but the job advertisement says something about data munging then you know change the wording of your cv so it matches what's in the job advertisement if that hr person has those types of words in their keyword list of what they're looking for, then you really want to make sure that you're using those exact words, because that HR person probably doesn't know that a lot of those words mean the same thing. If, for example, a job advertisement asks for skills in doing uh, ETLs uh, (extract, transform, and load), and you have in your CV something like you've got good experience um, building FME workbenches that HR person isn't necessarily going to understand that quite often building FME workbenches is something that you do to create an ETL. So you really need to make sure that that terminology that you're using is likely to be those keywords that they're looking for.
1: Is that the same for pieces of software, for example? And I think this is a classic where people are asking for particular skills in a certain set of software. And let's pretend for a second, we don't have those skills. Let's say they're asking for skills with, with the, the ESRI suite of software, and we don't have those ESRI skills. What can we do there in terms of trying to make those keywords match in with what the HR person is looking for?
0: A lot of GIS skills are quite transferable. So if you have experience with different software that you can relate to something like an ESRI piece of software, then by all means, focus on that transferable skill and downplay I guess or mention later what particular software it was that you used but talk more about whatever the functionality was that was required or the techniques or processes that are used you know quite often common to a lot of of software but you also need to recognise that if an employer is actually asking for skills specific to one module of software or if they're asking for a certification with ArcGIS for server or something like that,
1: then, you know,
0: sometimes you do need that qualification.
1: Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And I think you gave some really good advice there with focusing, you know, if you still think that that what you can do is relevant for this company, then focus on the way you did it as opposed to what you did it with. I think that's some really good advice. So let's pretend for a second that we have ticked all the boxes, we have used our keywords correctly, we have highlighted these, key skills that the company the organization was asking for and we have successfully gotten past that first gatekeeper that that HR person who is the next gatekeeper that we need to be thinking about and writing our, our CV for
0: So typically after the HR person has handed a short list of CVs to the hiring manager which will tend to be a GIS manager it's still really important that that first part of the CV, demonstrates your key strengths for this particular role. However, obviously the GIS managers will have a bit more technical understanding than the HR managers, so after that first part of your CV, you can start to talk in a few more technical terms. One thing that I would recommend is that you look at the job advertisement for the particular role and see what the requirements are listed in the job advertisement. And one technique that I use is to actually copy those requirements and use those as headings in my CV, and then I can respond directly to what has been requested. And if that's in the same order as what it was in the job advertisement, quite often that's what the hiring manager and the HR manager are actually marking you against. And so if you're using that same order and using those same headings, they can see exactly what it is that you're applying to. Uh, The other things that I would strongly recommend is that you need to be supplying some evidence for the GIS manager in particular of the things that you've done. One problem that I see with a lot of CVs is where people just do things like, give me a list of software that they have used. And that's really difficult to judge You know how they have used that particular software and and how well they know it so it's much better if as well as listing the software which you're familiar with if you actually talk about some things that you've done with that software and if you can supply some evidence such as a hyperlink to maybe a a web viewer that you've set up or a a story map that you've produced or if you've won an award or some things like that then any links that you can insert into your CV I find really useful. If, for example, you worked on a project and maybe the CEO of your company wrote you an email congratulating you for your work on it, you know, quote that email as part of your CV. That's great evidence of what you've achieved. And that can be a lot more powerful than just listing some pieces of software that you've used.
1: Yeah, I, I love the idea of having a portfolio that you can link to. And I think if you click on that link, for example, all of a sudden you have so much more time with that person that you're trying to impress and you have so many more options in, in terms of telling your story, showing what you can do and providing evidence for that on a web page than what you do in a, in a, in a PDF document, essentially. So I, I'm a big fan of that kind of thing. In a previous conversation, you talked about um, the importance of not just listing these softwares, bullet points, I've used this, I've used that, I've done that. And you talked about trying to put it in a bigger perspective. Would you mind walking me through that again, please?
0: Expanding from just the software that you've used and explaining the types of projects that you've worked on and what that project was about. What, you know, what data were you using? What was the purpose of the project? And what were the outcomes? So I know for some students, they kind of feel that they don't have that work experience to be able to include things like that um, with their first CV. But, uh, you know, through your um, university work, uh, you will have done a lot of assignments or projects as part of your coursework. And it's absolutely fine to use some of those assignments to do the same thing, to explain what the process was that you worked through, how you used the software tools and what the findings were from the results of your study.
1: Yeah, I think that puts things in a, in a context for people as well and helps them uh, understand things when they have a bit of a story around it, when you can show, well, this is why we started doing it and this is what the process looked like and, and this is where we ended up. And and then maybe you could have a, a section about what worked, what didn't work. But I think all of that kind of stuff shows a a, a much greater depth of understanding about the work that, that you've done in the past. Yes,
0: absolutely. And that's how you can make yourself stand out from the crowd. Quite often, a lot of CVs that I see are just uh, lists of uh, software or lists, lists of different projects that people have done. But just giving me a list of the names of projects, for example, doesn't mean anything to me as, a, as an employer. You need to explain a little bit about um, what it is that you're actually doing.
1: Okay, so now we've talked about the HR person, we've talked about that GIS manager. What does what the next step in the process look like for us and, and how does a CV play a role in that?
0: Sure. So the next, next step in the process is undoubtedly to get invited for an interview. And there's a few things which are absolutely essential for preparing for an interview. You need to find out as much as you can about the organisation that you're going to have an interview with. And it is a very common first question that a lot of interviewers will ask you is, what do you know about our team or what do you know about our company? And if you haven't even looked at their website and don't know their business, then that's, that's a big red mark against you straight away. So do as much research as you can about the organisation. Look at their website. Do a um, Google search on news articles about that organisation. Do a Google search on that organization's name and geospatial and see if there's any articles about what their geospatial team have done in the past. If you find out that three years ago they were working on a, an agriculture project and you know something about agriculture, then that's a potential thing that you can use in that interview. You know, you need to be able to expand on the things which are in your CV. That's probably the key things which they're going to be asking about, why you are relevant to the things which they are looking for. So make sure that you review the job advertisement as part of your preparation. Another thing which I uh, strongly recommend with interviews is take a notebook and have some notes in it about the things that you want to talk about. Quite often when people are in interviews, they get nervous and they may have prepared really well before the interview, but they forget a lot of things that they wanted to say. So if you have a notebook in front of you and have some of the key strengths that you wanted to mention, then that might just give you a little prompt if you get a question that you can use some of that evidence for. Another recommendation that I have with interviews, particularly for students and recent graduates, is to practice the interview before you actually have it. So if you have somebody that you can talk to, like a friend of the family or a neighbor or somebody like that, that is willing to take you through a practice interview, that's actually really good preparation for the proper interview. The more that you do something before it's actually the real thing, the better prepared you'll be for it. And if you know someone, and if they can sit down with you and and take you through and practice an interview, then you'll be able to identify what you're good at in the interview. And if that person interviewing you, Ask some of those curly questions, and you actually have to think about how you're going to reply to it. Then, when it comes to the real interview, you'll be much better prepared and you'll also go into the interview much more
1: confident. So, we've got to the interview stage now, and this is, I guess, we can safely assume that if we've got this far, then we've ticked a lot of these boxes. We've said we've had those skills that you were asking for, and we've been able to explain them in such a way that people can read and understand and sort of get a feeling for where we are in our journey, how much. Depth of understanding, the kinds of projects, the kinds of work we've done before. But when you're sitting on the other side of the table, when you're doing the interviewing, what is it that you are looking for apart from from those kind of that, that list of skills that you you already know these people have? What else are you looking for?
0: One thing that's really important with all of this is that the geospatial industry is really broad, and there are a lot of different types of roles that we have in the industry. Everything from you know, being a cartographer, to being a developer, to being a business analyst, being a project manager, that really does depend on which of those types of roles I'm interviewing for. So, for example, a project manager or a business analyst, I really need somebody who's good at communicating, good at facilitating meetings, and good at speaking. However, for a developer, those skills are not quite as important. We have some developers, English isn't their first language, for, for example. So, you know, that can vary between all of those different types of roles. But the things which I look for in those, those interviews is I take items from the CV and just explore them a bit further and prod people to give me some more detail about what they actually did. And quite often I'm testing whether what they actually said in their CV is completely true and wanting them to demonstrate that they actually, if they talk about having skills with some particular software or a particular process or some particular data sets, then I'll just um, ask them to expand on those things a bit. And quite often I can test whether just how deep their knowledge of those things is.
1: So earlier in the conversation, you talked about doing research on the company, the organization where we're applying for this job. Does that go the other way as well? So obviously, when we get to the interview stage, you've seen the, the CV, you've read the cover letter, if there's been a portfolio of work, you, you've looked at that as well. Beyond that, do you do research on the, the people applying? Do you search for, for their names on Google and see what comes up? Do you go to their social media profiles, that kind of thing?
0: LinkedIn, I absolutely do but I think it's, it's a bit inappropriate and, and not professional really to, to look too deeply at other forms of social media. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go and look at people's Facebook profiles. That To me, that's their private business. But absolutely LinkedIn profiles, I definitely do go and look at and cross-reference that what's on their LinkedIn profile matches what's, what's in their CV and see if there's any other details in their LinkedIn profile which they didn't have space to include in their CV. Some of the other things with uh, LinkedIn is that, again, coming back to the networking point, quite often with the connections that people have in LinkedIn, if we share a contact, and I, maybe I'm on friendly terms with that contact, and maybe someone I know has worked in an organisation with the, the person that's applying for the job, If I'm interested in that applicant, then I will contact my friend and say, hey, I'm thinking about hiring this person. Looks like you worked in the same organisation a few years ago. Do you know them and can you tell me something about them? In that respect, I will absolutely be doing some additional research, but very much from a professional perspective, not from prying into people's private
1: lives. Thanks for sharing that with us. I really appreciate those insights. I think you talked about like a, a practical examination at some stage during this application process. Where is that with regards to the the interview?
0: As I said, there's a lot of different roles in the geospatial industry. So the a competency test will vary from role to role. Sometimes we just get one of our senior technical personnel to run through a set of questions, technical questions with an applicant, which is a little bit different to a job interview. Other times we'll actually set them a small test, or sometimes we will, for development roles, for example, we'll actually give them a very short piece of coding to do or something like that, something that they should be able to achieve within an hour or two, and then see the results at
1: the end of that time. One interesting thing which I have
0: done when I've been hiring project managers. Uh, was actually to pretend to have a a project uh, that we were setting up and and getting them to write a a statement of work, a contract to initiate the the project. And I pretended to be one of our clients and was sending emails to several project management candidates, basically sending them the requirements of uh, this particular project, but an email form, which is quite often... type of communication that we get and i gave them a template of a statement of work contract that i wanted them to complete and in the emails there were sort of hidden risks and hidden things which if they didn't think about they would um, give me the wrong responses in the in this document and that was a really good uh, way of testing quite a few things in a short space of time. It tested how good their written communication was. It tested their project management knowledge uh, when I was sort of hiding some risky things in the types of emails that I was sending to them. And that really was a very good test of their project management skills. Some examples of the sorts of things which I did with that was gave them a set of estimates for implementing some software but put in those estimates that it was just for one environment. And then in a different email mentioned that the software had to be implemented in development tests and production environments. So I was checking whether they would realize that they needed to triple the estimate for that particular piece of work, which is a common situation. And if you're not clued up on GIS project management, then that's the type of mistake that you can make. And so, um, you know, that was a really good way of testing some of the applicants that we had. Another example, which I quite often use, which is similar, but more for technical roles, is that I explain a problem to a technical person and then ask them, how would you go about solving this problem? What is the process that you would use? And, you know, I'm expecting them to say things like, well, Uh, First I would um, list the requirements and then analyse each of the requirements and then I'd work out which data sets it is that I need to be using and research the best data sets if that wasn't specified. And then I'd work out which pieces of software I needed to use and which functions within that software was going to give the correct results. And then I'd think about how I wanted to test the outcomes of the process to make sure that it's correct. So, you know, that type of um, approach where you're giving people enough information to get started with how to explain something, but then asking them to explain their approach, you know, that's a really powerful way of very quickly estimating people's skills, which can be a lot more effective than something like a written test.
1: So that makes a lot of sense to me, that this idea that, you know, you... You read about the work, you have them explain the work that they're doing, and then there's some kind of test, like, a, in this situation, what would you do? So I uh, appreciate you again for, for sharing that with us. I hope that that helps some people and gives them some ideas of the things that they might uh, expect when they're applying for jobs. And perhaps if they're on the other side of the table, some things they could do if they were looking to, to test people and figure out who was going to be the best candidate. Earlier on in the conversation, you suggested that, you know, before we go to interviews, that we could do these practice interviews Do you have any suggestions of how we could practice these kinds of tests that you're talking about now?
0: With these particular types of questions, you need someone who knows something about GIS so that they're asking the right types of technical questions. But, you know, reach out to some of your friends and get them to practice an interview with them and ask them to ask some of these types of questions where if it's something relevant to this particular industry sector that you want to move into... Maybe it's a um, geospatial job, which is to do with agriculture, for example. Get somebody to come up with a scenario of saying, right, we have a client that wants to work out how much uh, fertiliser they need to spread on some paddocks, and the paddocks have got different soil types and different slopes and things like that. Walk me through the process of how you would do that. And you know, that's a reasonably easy scenario to come up with. And um, it's quite a good test. Or another really good idea for this type of thing is to think about something that is current in the news media. So, you know, maybe you could ask some questions about the approach to the COVID pandemic and some things to do with, you know, how would you set up some GIS analysis to measure the success of the vaccinations across um, different areas or something like that, or in Auckland at the moment. There's a lot of interest in uh, setting up a new port, which is, you know, that's going to be a multi-billion dollar project. So, you know, and there's multiple sites where that port could go. So, you know, a really simple question is, if you had to do analysis to choose which location to put the new port, what criteria and what process would you use to evaluate where that port should go? You have to think about these things. It's, it's not something that you can just rattle off the top of your head, but it gives a really good indication of how well people understand geospatial technology without it being sort of a yes, no, or, or multi-choice type questions. And, you know, in the real world, these are the types of questions which um, we're using geospatial technology to answer.
1: So let's say I made it all the way through this process and let's say it was, you know, there was an offer on the table. Early in the conversation, you, you talked about the negotiation side of things. As an employee, I don't think many people have a really great understanding of what it is that we can negotiate. What can we negotiate on training, on hours, flexibility? Can you give us an understanding of the kinds of things that you would be happy to negotiate on in terms of that uh, employee contract?
0: Sure. Okay. So there's a few few aspects to the answer to this. One thing is that some employers, it's not a good idea to talk about salary rates too early in the conversation. You may be able to get an indication of pay scales early, but some employers don't like talking about that until later in the process. So for the most part, To be safe, I would not ask about salary as the first question that I ask when I go into an interview. I personally would wait until I've been offered the job and then start talking about salary rates. That being said, other types of benefits such as training, you can absolutely ask that as part of the interview. Ask if their personnel often get sent on training courses ask if they have training plans a lot of organizations do have those and really they should have then it's a reasonable question to ask you know are there any other benefits to working for the organization apart from the salary and uh, whether those uh, benefits are things like uh, car parking or something like that Uh, you know those are worth understanding for a lot of jobs
1: so, j- just to be clear, these are questions that we can ask at the interview stage of the process. But when we get to the negotiation side of the process, is that where there's an offer on the table? Are we asking the same kinds of questions again? Or is there a whole new thing, a, a bunch of new things that, that we can ask in-, in terms of our negotiation?
0: Once there's an offer on the table, then you can uh, negotiate around the-, the salary. But if you haven't covered the other benefits at the same time, then I certainly would be asking what those additional benefits are at that point in time as well. So whether there is any uh healthcare support, for example, or retirement funding, all of those types of questions, you know, um, it is important that you understand the whole package and not just the salary rate, because for a lot of um, jobs, those additional benefits can be very enticing. And it's not necessarily the salary rates. If you just get a salary and don't get any other benefits, then quite often you're actually worse off than a lower salary with more benefits.
1: So if I'm sitting at the negotiating table with you and I start negotiating around some of these things and asking questions and pushing back on, on perhaps benefits to or salary or, or training or, or whatever it is, do I come across as interested and engaged or do I come across as being entitled and greedy?
0: You know, that's, that's quite a difficult question and different employers will react differently and it may depend even on little things like the way that you word things. You should plan ahead how you're going to ask those questions and get the wording to be, I guess, kind of assertive but at the same time polite and some other things that I would say about that is to not labor the point. So, if, if you, I think it's kind of okay to, with salary, for example, to request something more once, but I wouldn't um, request more. And then, if an employer either says no or meets you halfway, kind of thing. I wouldn't go back again and then try and try and get a little bit more than what they've offered too many times after that. So, you know, don't make it difficult for the employer to increase what's been offered a little bit. Don't keep on going backwards and forwards, basically. In terms of things like training, it can be a good idea to have some ideas about training courses that you would like to do and to request them at the same time as you... Having those negotiations, some training courses if they're expensive, you know that's a great way to get some more training. And quite often, employers see the benefits to their organisation of you doing more training. So, um, you know, you can quite often get quite a bit of budget towards training, and that's tends to be a lot more acceptable to employers than than just uh, extra extra salary. And there can be other other things that you can request. That point. So, for example, uh, maybe conference attendances or something like that. If you want to go to some conferences and maybe you have a few ones in mind, you know, you can ask the hiring company during the interview whether it's possible to go to conferences and what their policies are around those types of things. And also, you may get an opportunity during that negotiation to. To request
1: things like that as well nathan i think you've done a really brilliant job of walking us through the process and giving us a bunch of really great advice uh, along the way and I, I just want to round off the conversation a little bit now but i've got a few final questions for you so uh, again you, you've walked us through the what the process looks like today and i realize it's going to be different from organization to organization can you see this process changing much in the future so this kind of steps that you've walked us through do you think this is somehow the hiring process is going to change you know going forward and if so what do you think those changes might look like
0: so i do think that there will be more automation of that shortlisting process so the software that does that is becoming more common and so as we mentioned at at the start of the interview you know those keywords and matching the keywords to what's in the Job adversement is going to be more and more important. Some of the other things which I think will change in the future is that, as we've seen with COVID, there's going to be a lot more online, remote interviews uh, rather than necessarily needing to go and have a face-to-face interview, particularly for the first interviews. Um, I guess in a lot of cases, the second interview, maybe people will want to, you to visit the place of employment. and. That also is going to be really interesting to see with a lot more people working from home and a lot more opportunities to do that. You know, how that is going to impact on the ability, for example, of people to not necessarily need to live in the same city as where the job is, which has tended to be what was necessary in the past.
1: Yeah, I could imagine that, you know, for example, the the way the employment market looks today, it's a huge advantage if you're local to the organization if you are within driving distance or you can go to the office but it sounds like what you're saying and definitely what we've seen here in Denmark during the the COVID crisis is that this is becoming less important and I I guess this means that for employers that they have a much bigger pool of, of people to choose from
0: yes absolutely we we actually have some some people who are working for us on contracts um offshore at the moment and I certainly see that trend continuing.
1: Well, Nathan, again, I really want to thank you for your time today. I want to thank you for your insights. Slowly but surely, walking us through the process, what it looks like, giving tips and advice along the way. It's been an absolutely brilliant conversation. Thank you so much for that. Is there anywhere the listeners can go if they want to reach out to you or connect with you or or maybe continue this conversation?
0: The best way to do that is to contact me through LinkedIn. My name is uh, fairly distinctive, so... I think there's only one other Nathan Hazelwood in the world that I've seen, actually, and he lives in Australia, but so it's not that one. Yeah, if you look at the spelling of my surname and look for the only Nathan Hazelwood in New Zealand,
1: then that's probably me. Thanks again, Nathan. I'll I'll put a link to that in the show notes so it's easy for people to find. Thanks so much for your time. I've really enjoyed talking with you.
0: Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on.
1: Thank you very much to our sponsor, regrid.com. They used to be known as Landgrid, but they've recently had a brand upgrade and now they're known as Regrid. I'll put a link to them in the show notes. Regrid is one of the leading providers of land parcel data for, for the U.S., so if you're looking to understand how us land is subdivided owned and used inhabited regrid.com would be a great place to start they also offer a free trial so you can download up to 50,000 rows of parcel data and all the attributes connected with that for free just go along to regrid.com plans and you can you can take this data set for a test run i'll put a link to this in the show notes to make it a little bit easier to find so I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Nathan Hazelwood. I'll put links to his LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So you can easily find him. And I just want to say on a personal note, Nathan is a really great guy, a really generous person, deeply involved and engaged in the geospatial industry. And I am confident that if you reach out to him with a thoughtful question, that you will get a thoughtful response in return. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. As always, I really, really appreciate it. You're more than welcome to reach out to me on social media. You can find me at Mapscaping on on Twitter, or there'll be a link to my LinkedIn account in the show notes, and you're more than welcome to connect with me there. We produce some pretty detailed show notes for each of these episodes, so if that's something you're interested in, go along to mapscaping.com, and, yeah, you can find all the episodes and the show notes there. Thanks again. We'll talk again next week. Bye.